0: The Diabetes Podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking to your doctor.
1: Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Diabetes Podcast, where we try to empower diabetics to live the life they deserve. Uh, I'm Dr. Garapano, and with me is Dr. Grady Donahoe, and we are back for another one. Oh, yeah. So today, uh, we are talking about a recent uh, review article that Grady and I came across um, involving insulin in the brain. Um, I'm sure we'll have the link in the description of the podcast. Uh, But man, this thing was chock full information. I don't think we just couldn't not talk about it.
0: Yeah ton of information i mean there's a lot of stuff that i knew but they went into a lot more detail about it about it and then also there's some new stuff that i learned Mm -hmm.
1: so so grady and i read the article from 2014 known as insulin in the brain it's pathophysiological implications dot 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 and (laughs) um you know we're we'll kind of dive into this and and Actually, share some of this information as well as then what our takeaways are about this. But you know, Grady, for anyone kind of tuning in and decide before they decide to turn off the episode,
0: what is your takeaways um,
1: from this type of article?
0: My biggest takeaway from like a macros perspective is like how much insulin really does. We always think of insulin as controlling your blood sugar and maintaining a good blood sugar, but. Um, it does a lot of different things in the body and interacts with a lot of different um, biological pathways in the body producing a lot of different effects. And in this article, we're talking specifically about the brain and it does a ton of stuff in the brain. And as it relates to um, brain function, and especially in Alzheimer's disease um, it does a lot to help protect your brain against some of those things that build up and, and, lead to those conditions. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I had a very similar takeaway. It's incredible
1: how impactful this hormone is to the brain. Um, and I understand why we don't uh, think about it and don't talk about it as much, right? Because um, as diabetics, it, you know, the whole goal, especially when we start out, is to control our glucose via insulin. Um, and that's all the thought is to prevent... Uh, you know, any kind of long-term damage and any complications and try to live the life that we deserve. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when it comes to the clinical advice, you know, not many people are going to like really think about this, but I think um, once you are, you know, maybe a little bit of a veteran diabetic, you know, meaning after you get your feet wet, after the first few months of your diagnosis, you know, the more knowledge you learn about our, our condition, the better you can do.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, especially since everyone has a brain and everyone has insulin, and this isn't just a type one topic, this is literally everyone on the planet and in the United States is, you know, like, this is this impacts everyone. Um, so it's not it's not just how do we manage it. It's the impact of all of this.
0: Yeah, yeah. and And Alzheimer's is a scary condition that you ask most people if they have a loved one or somebody who has dementia or is, you know, quote unquote, losing their mind. Mm -hmm. um, The first thing they always say is, gee, I hope I don't end up like that. Like, I hope I die before something like that happens because not being able to remember what just happened or what happened yesterday or things like that, not be able to remember who you're, kids are or your grandkids stuff like that that's pretty scary and people um are pretty afraid of this condition so um so listen up because we're going to be going over some pretty interesting information
1: right so let's kind of set the stage of everywhere and why and it's important to set the stage because they the brain is very unique with insulin so what, how we know about insulin, and we've talked about it a couple of times here on the podcast before, the central dogma of insulin is that the insulin will bind a receptor. That receptor will, will bring something to the cell surface, something called a glute 4 transporter, and that will allow glucose into the cell. And that's where we control our blood sugar because outside the cell is where our blood is and where the glucose was and we need it inside the cell, right? Um, however, there's... When we think about that and when people start talking about this, you need to be hyper aware of what the context is. Are people talking about hyperinsulin in the blood? Are they talking about hyperglycemia in the blood? Or are they talking about a lot of glucose in the cell? You know, the conversation of glucose in the periphery versus cell or insulin concentrations in the blood versus you know, the cell, or what cells are making the insulin? That's actually a really important conversation. Um, in a a context perspective, understanding the any kind of research that's put out or any kind of textbook or, or anything when it comes to the physiology, because when physiology, when you're talking about physiology, it's all about the location. And because similar things can do different actions in different locations. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, what if I told you that the brain actually has very little glute 4 And we don't actually need insulin for glucose in the brain.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people would be very, very surprised to hear that.
1: It, I remember the first time I heard that I was like, that doesn't make sense. What that, especially if you've heard that our brain is the most glucose sensitive organ, right? Mm -hmm. We need to constantly fuel. like if you ever dive into the ketogenic diet, you know, that's always like the big caveat as you know, is, uh, no carbs, no carbs, no carbs, no glucose, except your brain can run off ketones, but you still need glucose. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that is a true statement. Most of our, our neurons and our brains don't have a lot of glute four and it's so The brain is so glucose sensitive because it's, it doesn't need a secondary hormone. It doesn't need insulin to allow that glucose in there. So if our brains don't need insulin, uh, for glucose uptake, why are they calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes? It doesn't seem like that would be an issue, right? If, if, if diabetes is this issue with insulin management, whether you're type one or two, how does that start affecting the brain? And if it seems like the brain doesn't even need it. Um, additionally, uh, what was really interesting once I started getting into this was there's data out there, which we'll talk about that, the brain can make its own insulin. So, all right, let, let me take a step back. So the brain, so insulin is usually used for glute for the brain doesn't have glute for brain doesn't need insulin for glucose, but yet the brain makes its own insulin. That seems weird. Mm-hmm. What's going on there. So what, what purpose and how, how does that impact our lives as, as diabetics? Um, so let's kind of expand before we just dive into those bigger questions. Cause that's when I was diving into this topic, that those are really the questions I wanted answered. I want to know what was making it. Why do we have it? What's the issue? You know, I, those are, but to understand that, let's kind of like break it down a little bit more. Right. Yeah. So other, there were other transporters in the brain besides GLUT4. So we just went over GLUT4 um, and as the number suggests, there's different numbers of those, uh, gluten one is a similar transporter and it's the most abundant transporter in the brain. And because of this, it actually sometimes has different specialization functions and different tissue types. Um, so, and actually so much, so it's so specialized that some gluten one actually does respond to insulin, but most gluten one is everywhere. It doesn't need insulin. And when, if you thought about one transporter for the brain, it would be this. So then we have glute three and where this is located, it is in your neurons, which is your, just your typical, uh, cells and, you know, neuronal cells that are throughout your whole body of your nervous system, your cerebellum, your hippocampus, and all over the cortex and striatum within the brain.
0: Yeah. So to clarify, um, cerebellum is in the base of the brain and that does a lot of your coordination. It does a lot of other things, but balance knowing where your body is in space. Um, Hippocampus has a lot to do with your memory. So long-term, short-term and converting it short-term into long-term. And then obviously your cortex is the outer part of your um, brain Mm -hmm. and has various functions depending on where you're at in there. So
1: these all places have, thank you for clarifying, uh, doctor. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, These places in the brain um, have a lot of glute 3 in there and uh, you know, that is still insulin independent. So insulin still is not needed for that transporter, but it's just to note that those are in those locations. Um, However, there is still GLUT4 in the brain, right? So um, GLUT4 is used uh, in the olfactory bulb. And also we said the hippocampus has GLUT3, but the hippocampus also has GLUT4 and also in the tracks in between your hypothalamus and your cerebellum, uh, they found some GLUT4 um, translocators there as well within those cells. Yeah.
0: yeah. And the, the olfactory bulb is essentially your smell centers.
1: Yeah. It's uh, I find that actually really interesting uh, when you, we're not going to get too much into leptin and hunger and, and actual that type of physiology. But if you're thinking about the brain and insulin and then insulin's role and in obesity and all these other signals, our nose has so much of taste, right? So much taste and sensation comes from our nose. So yeah, there's GLUT4, which requires insulin coming from our olfactory bulb that's needed for the taste to begin with. I just find that kind of fascinating. In that In that part of the brain in particular, there's a lot of GLUT4 transporters.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think there's, again like with everything everything is affecting everything and there's so many like feedback loops that we we think of these major feedback loops that are kind of the most prominent or the most dominating feedback loops but there's Mm -hmm. feedback loops everywhere and for different systems and different areas of the body so um, and it's just always interesting to see evidence of that um, and how it fits into the full picture absolutely um
1: it always makes me this is probably the nerd within uh within me but it makes me like feel very humble like wow the connections between all these things is so unreal and uh you know the more you learn about science and the more you learn about the body you're just like how the heck does everything work so perfectly yeah. uh, with one another? then again we're talking about a pathological state of diabetes so sometimes it doesn't work perfectly. <laughs> but you know it's just it's just crazy to me yeah. <laughs> so um, so that's kind of a little bit more where the transporters are. And again, that's kind of setting up the stage. Now, insulin has other functions, right? So that's so what are the other functions of insulin? You know, I think a big part of this conversation we're having here on this episode is regarding memory and as well as protecting the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So so that's that's just a statement. One of the functions of insulin in the brain is for memory and so a, and neuroprotection and neuro regeneration kind of thing and neuroplasticity. So when the insulin they've done studies in the past and when they've injected insulin, um, into the periphery of the central nervous system and the central nervous system is essentially your brain and spinal cord. So that's just where, what that, uh, determination is. So when they've injected insulin into the central nervous system of animal models, they've showed increase effectiveness on memory and learning. Um, When they can, and they also saw more insulin receptor expression with injecting insulin. So they were able to conclude in this one article that, yeah, it's pretty clear that insulin has a positive effect on memory. Um, You know, to me, that seems very interesting. I don't know how that specific article kind of dissected out the effect of you know, other glucose, the actual glucose part of it, but nonetheless, they were able to show that memory
0: was increased uh, when the brain has insulin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they, they go on into kind of the specifics of how that's likely possible or how that's, you know, happening Mm -hmm. or creating that to happen, um, which, um, you know, one of those things is well, just to kind of back up a step, like, We think of insulin again as just controlling blood sugar, but insulin is a hormone and hormones don't just, it's not like a nutrient where it just comes into the cell. Now the cell has what it needs to build a protein or whatever else it needs to build in there. Now it has that, you know, supply. And now now it's going to create that. No, a hormone sets off a cascade of events inside the cell and produces a lot of different effects within the cell. So the cell can do different things. And so, um, we think of insulin kind of as this one trick pony when really it's, it's getting a lot of things done at the same time. And so, mm-hmm. um, one of those things is, um, or a product of, of that cascade is, um, growth and formation of, um, of neurites, which are basically just the extensions of the neurons or the, the branches of the neurons and, if you're familiar at all with neuroplasticity, which is basically the connections between different cells, and the more those connections fire and interact with each other, the more solid that essentially connection is. And therefore, when you're creating memories or, or trying to remember something, the more you fire that same pathway in the, in the neurons, the stronger those connections get, and therefore, the better you're going to remember So Mm -hmm. if you have insulin that's producing or helping grow these projections and helping them connect to other neurons better and more efficiently, well, as a result, your memory is likely going to get better and you're going to have a better or a more efficient memory where you don't have to sit there and look at a list of things for 20 minutes just to remember, um, just to remember it. So that's kind of one of those things that, um, they bring up and kind of to bridge the gap there.
1: Yeah. And I think neuroplasticity is a, uh, I think there's plenty of people talking about it now, but, mm-hmm. you know, the, I remember, well, no, I remember when I started learning, once I, essentially, once I was in school, the idea of neuroplasticity, especially in chiropractic school, learning the physiological, you know, the more you fire that, that pattern, the stronger it's going to become, mm-hmm. right? That you just said. But in general, neuroplasticity, the idea that you can remake connections in the brain, because the thought was before, essentially neuroplasticity is this, and if I can bastardize a summarization of an entire field, it would be that, you know, before they used to say, yeah, once brain cells are dead, they're dead. You're not getting new brain cells. Well, that may be true, even though there's some data like this that we're talking about that says that might not be true. Um but let's just assume that you might not be able to grow new neurons and new brain cells. However, with what you have, the amount of connections between those cells is infinite and the plasticity or the, that connection can continue to increase and continue to get more and more. So everything that you just said, you know, the fact that insulin has a functionality in that field is amazing and should give us, as diabetics, like a sense of like, huh, what I'm doing is literally changing how my brain works. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it does that in other ways too, right? So it's not only just this neuroplasticity and insulin receptors and all this effectiveness of memory, but it's also, it starts to affect the components of the neurotransmitters. So the actual chemicals between the neurons. Mm -hmm. So insulin has been shown to influence things like serotonin reuptake, so that phrase might be familiar to some, uh, cause serotonin reuptake inhibitor SSRIs are like one of the most common antidepressant medicines up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so incident has a role and, and serotonin and it's reuptake. And it's also been shown to increase the expression of dopamine receptors within those synaptic cleft, or rather the space in between when one, one neuron ends and another one begins, and that's where those neurotransmitters are. So, it's able to increase that expression of dopamine receptors, as well as it can change then all these neurotransmitters are essentially made of amino acids and it changes then the uptake of amino acids and using more amino acids for the pool or what's just known as like essentially your collections bin of all materials, it's able to get more amino acids in its collections bin, the neurons that is, so it can then start to create and manufacture more and more neurotransmitters, and therefore fire the appropriate pathways once those connections are even made.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like to kind of sum up the two po- major points that we've said, it, it comes back to the hormone aspect of um, insulin. In a general sense, is a anabolic hormone, and mm-hmm. so anabolic just simply means growing. So when you apply it to a cell likelihood is it's going to grow and in different ways so every cell is different but in this case with neurons you're creating um extensions of that neuron creating more connections um building and proliferating more neurotransmitters and producing more of those things Um, so it just makes the cell and the production bigger
1: and so mind you i think you know one one downfall it could be as if you were in any kind of medical school or healthcare training, as if you're learning about this kind of stuff, or just interested in this stuff, you hear about something, you think, oh, it's a good thing. Like th- these all sound like good things, right? It's not a good or bad thing. It just is, yep. you know, this is just what insulin's role is. This has nothing to do with too much insulin or too little insulin or where the insulin is coming from. When insulin is in these areas, this is what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a important fact to kind of reiterate at this moment here. Um, because it's like, oh, that means you can go down the rabbit hole then and say, oh, insulin's great for the brain.
0: <laughs> and, Take
1: all the insulin I can. Right. And but that might not, not necessarily be exactly what you what you need, um, because you don't want insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So, anyways. Uh, so the protection continues in, in multiple ways then, you know, another role of it is to protect the brain from other types of damage. So it's been, it's been shown to prevent, uh, apoptosis or premature apoptosis in brain cells. Uh, and apoptosis is programmed cell death. So a lot of times when a cell is damaged, the cell has this internal mechanism of just to kill itself and just to blow up because it's saying, you know, I'm not as important as the whole body. I don't want to essentially mess anything more up. I'm just going to, it's time for me to go. And the cell just kind of kills itself. Um, and it does that through, for any nerds out there, through the PI3K pathway. Um, uh, you know, I remember in detail learning that a lot more, that pathway and memorizing it when I was an undergrad um, and thinking about maybe going to the PhD route. But as, as chiropractors, you know, I, I, I could not draw that diagram right now if I wanted to. <laughs> I'm not sure if you could. No, nah, nah. I can still draw the TCA cycle. And for all those that I've tutored out there that may or may not listen to this back in the day, I can still do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that one's burned into your head.
1: Forever, forever. <laughs> um, but anyways, so the insulin prevents apoptosis within the central nervous system. It also then um, prevents the buildup of alpha beta fibrils or what's re- referred to as amyloid fibrils and these are parts of the uh, beta amyloid plaques that are found in Alzheimer's mm-hmm. so these these build up you know it's essentially able to kind of clear this out more uh, which is really important in fact and, and really important to note as we start to shift this conversation more towards that Alzheimer's conversation
0: yeah yeah it kind of helps with clearing out the crud so whether that be the beta amyloid plaques or even the uh, tau proteins Mm -hmm. helps with kind of clearing out the waste products but then at the same time it helps with um, kind of the prevention of those even kind of forming or the phosphorylation of those um, Mm -hmm. which is what the process that helps form those um, beta amyloid plaques and so helps kind of slow down the because ultimately those things uh, you know those things occur even in a normal functioning person mm-hmm. but um, we also need to be able to clear those out of the cell efficiently because if they build up that seems to be at least based off of the observations that they've had Alzheimer's patients having a lot of beta amyloid packs and or tau proteins in their set in their brain cells um, it helps insulin helps clear that out and therefore not not allowing those to build up as much.
1: Right. Uh, so undoubtedly an important note to make. So another protective effect of insulin um, and parallel to that is, you know, a more general damaging thing, not just the brain, but the whole body, is oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. And so it combat, insulin actually combats oxidative stress, which is always, you know, kind of an ironic thing when you think about um, hyperinsulinemia and hyperglycemia in the periphery. And when I say periphery, I mean the outside part of the body, the extended part of the body, not the brain. You know, the the, the peripheral nervous system, which is your limbs and anything outside of essentially your spine. So, uh, anyways, when it comes to oxidative stress, and you know, insulin, if you have hyperinsulinemia, oxidative stress might be higher. But insulin actually protects against oxidative stress by two ways. One of by doing appropriate atp production so essentially means if there's normal glucose homeostasis which insulin is still related to in a way in the brain that well, if there's normal atp production there won't be as much oxidative stress so that's kind of the first thing that you know from a cellular level if everything's working good <laughs> there's no oxidative stress um and insulin has a effect in that it also increases something called uric acid uh, within the neurons. Now, uric acid um, might be commonly, and from a like med school study for just the exam perspective, um, is uric acid might be thought as gout, right? Yep. Um, but uric acid is actually an antioxidant in the body. And so insulin has been shown to increase uric acid within neurons. Uh, and that's important to, to note because other antioxidants like glutathione, vitamin C, vitamin E, it's all part of the pool, um, of the, and part of the defense of the brain from oxidative stress and and free radical damage. So it's good to know that not only insulin helps regular energy like ATP production, but it also can trigger defenses in, uh, when it comes to free radicals and, and
0: oxidation. Yeah, Yeah. there was a point that was made in the paper that I think probably should have been more of a question or a topic of discussion, which was um, it seemed like lower insulin levels seemed to produce an anti-inflammatory effect, whereas high insulin levels seemed to produce somewhat of an inflammatory effect Mm -hmm. And I question whether the insulin is producing that inflammatory response, or is it the fact that there's a lot of inflammation going on that's causing insulin resistance, and therefore now there's a lot of insulin around. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we see what's happening, but why is that happening? Is that the insulin causing inflammation or is inflammation causing the higher insulin levels? is it somewhat both um that's the question and that's the kind of the debate that um came across my mind anyways
1: well yeah because that's the same debate in the periphery you know is insulin resistance in in the regular cells we think about where insulin is needed you know is insulin resistance a cause of hyperinsulinemia or is hyperinsulinemia a cause of insulin resistance from other mechanisms mm-hmm. you know so it's a chicken or an egg conversation um is one right or both right. Can both be right. Um, You know, that's what one of many unanswered questions that there are out there, or, you know, maybe there is more data on that, that, you know, you and I might not have read up on, but from, you know, it's not talked at least clinically, you know, there's no sound. People say it is this, or it is that it's, it's very much still up in the air. Yeah. So In short of all of this, you know, this is to kind of explain a little bit more about how insulin can be protective, how insulin affects memory and learning and neurotransmitters. So it has so much functions in the brain. Um, But then the question is, you know, how does, what is the role of insulin in terms of getting in there? And then, you know, so we now just talked about the function. So how does the brain get insulin? I guess is a better way to phrase this next part.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so one of the interesting things and one of the questions i brought up earlier was that the in, there's data out there that says that insulin might be produced in the brain and that's mind-blowing as a if you're a diabetic and i think i brought this up on another podcast uh recently that we did maybe it was just by talking to you i can't i can't remember anymore <laughs> um but as a diabetic, you know, as a, especially if you're type one, you think "Oh, I can't produce insulin whatsoever. So then if somebody tells you actually you're, you can, and your brain makes mm-hmm. insulin, like you go in defensive mode. Yeah. You're like, no, I, no, it can't. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's it's a very weird thought to have.
0: Mm, yeah. Especially where you're like, well, if I was producing insulin, well, then my blood sugar would, would be better. Well, right. it doesn't, doesn't cross. It doesn't cross back over as
1: well and then that's the point right is so there's something called the the blood brain barrier so i'm just going to jump into that that's a perfect transition we'll go back to the production of insulin um the blood brain barrier is literally what it sounds like there's specialized um endothelial cells or just surf more superficial cells that its whole job is to protect whatever's happening in the blood because the blood that's in your arm does and can circulate to the brain But it's supposed to have another step of protection and separation to get the blood in circulation within the brain because the brain is so important.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there's this barrier in place there. So insulin itself is actually too big to cross the blood barrier alone. So it literally is stopped by the blood brain barrier. So what the thought is, is that there's three different types of insulin receptors on the blood brain barrier they've, they've found that actually aid in this. There's one insulin receptor type on the blood-brain barrier that actually just works kind of like the normal glucose uh, physiology that we think about. Insulin will bind and then it helps ATP production just kind of does its thing. Then there's two other types of insulin receptors on there that actually help cross or make the other amounts of insulin cross the blood-brain barrier into the brain. So what that means is insulin, let's say you had, let's just for the example of this, there's two insulins, they're buddies, they're diabuddies. they're holding hands. I guess we're holding hands Sound crazy? <laughs> and they go together to the blood brain barrier because they want to get in the brain. Well, you as one of the insulin molecules is going to bind the receptor and say, you know what, go on without me. I'm good. I didn't want to go in there anyway. But because you bound to the receptor, it allows me, unless I just totally switched the analogy on who's doing what. Um, but then it allows me to go through the blood brain barrier through specialized transportation proteins. Yeah. So yeah, it, it, I explained it that way. Cause it could be confusing to think, well, if insulin binds, but insulin binding is allowing more insulin to get across the blood, blood brain barrier. You have to remember that there's this concentration of insulin in the blood. And so one binding of it doesn't mean that's it. That means it just allows what's left to go in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so, does that kind of... What are your thoughts, great about the whole blood-brain barrier issue with insulin?
0: Yeah. So, ultimately, like, when we think about insulin in the brain, the question is: now that we know there's evidence of production of insulin in the brain, is is the <laughs> insulin in the brain because of the production of the insulin in the brain, or is it because it's getting through the blood-brain barrier, and so therefore? the periphery is affecting the central nervous system. Exactly. The answer is yes. I think both <laughs> of those things are happening at the same time. And your body is trying to coordinate those two things at the same time.
1: Yeah. Which is, you know, most of the time, that's always the answer is yeah.
0: yes, is the answer.
1: <laughs> you know, it's most of the times it's both. If there's anything that I've kind of, if you can generalize two things about the body is that one, nothing, works like it's supposed to, and everything does everything. Mm-hmm. Um, this is then the third thing is that everything contradicts everything uh, yeah, because yeah. those two statements are contradiction to what I said earlier, like, Oh man, isn't it amazing how everything works together?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but so the production of insulin um, in the brain was first thought or kind of discovered in the literature around the 1970s, you know, late 1970s, essentially in 78, 79. And kind of what you described is what they were starting to see. So they were realizing that the insulin, so the production in the brain, or what rather the concentrations of insulin in the brain were different than the peripheral circulation. So what they saw was that if they increased the blood concentration of insulin, it did not increase the brain concentration of insulin and injecting insulin directly into the periphery. So a a way to kind of measure the, uh, the flow of of fluids like that with the brain um, is through CSF or central uh, cerebral spinal fluid. So they injected insulin into the periphery and it did not change insulin in the CSF concentrations at the same rate. Now it doesn't mean, you know, there was actually a change in CSF, insulin concentrations, but it wasn't at the same rate. So it was clear to them that it wasn't like this quick response, you know, and they weren't able to determine does that actually, is that what's changing the insulin in the cerebral spinal fluid or is it something else, you know, but it's very delayed. And so to them, they thought, okay, it, it seems to be different. There's this, Difference between the brain
0: insulin and what's going on in, in everywhere else. Yeah, and just to reiterate, they are injecting insulin, not glucose. Because I, re- I was no, because that okay. because when I was reading, it's real easy as a diabetic to always think about glucose, but we're talking about insulin and the concentration yeah. of insulin not not glucose so because when i was reading the paper my mind was always saying like glu- they're injecting glucose and it's doing this i'm like nope it's insulin <laughs> yeah yeah
1: as a diabetic you always just think about glucose because that's just that's our word right yep <laughs> and uh c6h1206 baby um you know i remember first take my first biochemistry courses and that's why i love biochemistry i was like glucose that's me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Um, so yeah, that's very, very good. Yeah. That's, that's important to, to highlight. So there's this difference. So there's somehow this difference in insulin concentrations between the blood and the rest of the body. They also then found C-peptide within the brain and hypothalamus. Now this, I thought, I think this is very clear when you read this, I think this is like, oh yeah, the brain makes insulin. Um, because C-peptide is part of the insulin hormone that's during its production that gets chopped off and it's not, it's a pretty close to -to one-to-one, uh, correlation, um, to insulin production. And so if you measure your C-peptide in your blood gradient, and what you and I have during our own experiments, um, to see, oh, maybe we are making more insulin. Um, Mm -hmm. if you measure C-peptide in the blood it's going to tell you how much insulin your, your pancreas is making. And if type ones, it's going to be maybe not exactly zero, but it's gonna be like 0.001. And if you're type two diabetic or pre-diabetic, it might be really higher than normal because you're producing too much insulin. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I read this, I was like, this is it.
0: Yep. Yeah. It's like, all right, if it's, if it's in the brain, then it's likely producing because why else would it be in the brain? Why would the brain pull in C-peptide? Because it really doesn't do, at least from what we know now, really doesn't do anything besides um, that's the byproduct of the production of insulin.
1: And so one might think then, okay, well, what if insulin can, if there's mechanisms that we just talked about, that insulin can cross the blood-brain barrier through binding, maybe... There's something like that. And that would be a good scientific question to ask, actually. Yeah. Right. Um, that, that's when you know you're starting to think outside the box a little bit more. Um, the only challenges to that type of question is one, C peptide has no function really besides just being a byproduct of insulin production. Mm-hmm. As well as two, um, is in part of the studies in the 80s where they found the C peptide, they were doing a fasting and feeding. Um, Study that was similar to what it would kind of look like for with a normal person in the blood. So what they did was they made they fasted the the studies. You know whether it was most likely animal models and for the most part, this review and this this research that we're talking about within this review article is a combination of animal and and human studies. Um, but since we're not so nitty gritty here we haven't really thought to care to really point out the difference too often, but most likely this was done in an animal model and they were fasting the animal model and they saw a fall or a decrease of C peptide in the brain with less with, with fasting. So, you know, that's, that's kind of a normal response. Um, and they saw that within the hypothalamus, but then they saw a rise of the C peptide within 72 hours after they started feeding the animals. So there was this natural fall and rise that was pretty similar to the expression of what insulin would be doing in the periphery, but only in the hypothalamus, which is where they found the Mm C-peptide. So to me, that sounds like there's this direct response to insulin in the brain, you know, or to what you're doing, the brain is quickly changing it and i feel like like we saw with the csf study we just kind of talked about in the review article it wouldn't it's not the same rate if you only go from the periphery into the brain and it's not normally the same rate but this is mirroring the similar rate that would happen with c peptide
0: yeah which also makes you question like okay is if c peptide is increasing after fasting or after stopping fasting why, why does the brain need to produce insulin more so at that time if, if the brain doesn't need insulin for uh, getting sugar into the cell? So mm-hmm. is it the fact that because we mentioned that the brain doesn't have as much glute for, maybe even none, no glute for, Is it more so that maybe inside the brain and with those specific cells, those cells actually need insulin to activate GLUT one or GLUT three, more specifically. So insulin is still needed. It's just with those ones, you know, what's going on there? That's the okay. question, really. No, that's a, that's a good question. Yeah, uh, I don't have an answer. Yeah, this
1: is this is the, this conversation and this specific topic, man. This this is what makes me think I'm gonna stop seeing patients and I'm gonna go back and you know get my PhD and study this stuff because this is yeah. this is fascinating but all the big from my understanding from what i looked in the united states a lot of the um big labs to try to get into uh are all on in california and the west coast mm, yeah. um so me as a midwesterner i'm like ah well i'm SOL, well i guess yeah <laughs> so, anyways so um if the c peptide and then the change of insulin concentrations wasn't enough but then seeing within the hypothalamus, um, they even then started to find mRNA within the preventrical nucleus of the hypothalamus and other parts of the hypothalamus and the olfactory bulbs within multiple animals, not just rats, but multiple animals, um, suggesting that the gene expression or the DNA expression of insulin production uh, within, within these different parts of the brain. Um, So it kind of, maybe to sum, I just kind of said a bunch of words. (laughs) Um, You
0: want to kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So essentially like you, the mRNA, which is essentially what your body reads from your DNA to help produce things. So it is, um, they're, they're finding evidence of that mRNA that's responsible for producing insulin essentially is found in those areas of the brain. And therefore that's just kind of more evidence that it is produced in the brain. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So,
1: cause yeah, maybe you could argue the whole C peptide, maybe there's a function yeah. we don't know about C peptide, but why would the heck would there be MRNA? And there? there's literally no function of MRNA besides creation of that protein. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> that's yep. it's just more fuel to the fire exactly. uh, more evidence um, and, and a different type so my thought is you know we kind of already I already almost answered this at first but why aren't they talking about this more you know these studies were done you know in 1978 1979 um, in the 80s and 90s and still even to this day people are reviewing and, and thinking about this now and You know, in 2014 and not too far ago. So, why aren't they talking about brain and the insulin more in terms of management? Well, and it comes down to the mindset of managing our conditions opposed to the academia of using that knowledge, which we're unsure even how to use at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's frustrating because the biggest flaw in medicine is that they're going to use this information to try to create a drug that then activates these pathways that insulin activates or, or, you know, whatever they try to do when it would make much more sense to use this information to say, okay, we need to create a strategy for this person to help better manage their insulin, both in the periphery and in the brain. So whether that's focusing on diet and lifestyle things to help, reduce the right. sugar that's in the body and therefore not have to produce as much insulin and regulate it that way. Or if the problem is mainly inflammatory causing insulin resi- resistance, whether that's in the periphery insulin resistance or creating insulin resistance in the brain because of inflammation, let's try and figure that out. So that way insulin can do its job properly, which in the brain is clearing all the crud, creating extensions from the neurons, creating healthier neurons um, that's, that's where I get most more frustrated because at the end of this ar- article, they go into, uh, treatment options based off of this information. And I'm like, I stopped reading. Cause I'm like, you, you guys are missing the boat here.
1: Yeah. No, I, I, it should be for this. I do think they're, this can be used as motivation for people to take that, those leaps steps. You know, I always joke about when we look into exercise and diabetes, it's like, how many more reasons do we freaking need to tell people to, to move their bodies? Mm-hmm. Now why, you know, we don't need, even that's super interesting, you know, the purpose of researching um, exercise science now isn't to convince people to move their bodies. We have plenty of data. On yeah. this. However, for this, you know, we know that there are risks um, with diabetes and Alzheimer's, but, and, and brain health, but, Understanding the importance of insulin in the brain, literally, you know, clinically, I could say somebody comes in with a family history of Alzheimer's, and they're diabetic, and it's uncontrolled. I can use that as a connection point with them to say, we need to get this under control. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, let's find a way to do this for all the ones that you love for for yourself, for the relative that you have that you saw go through this. We need to control this now and and use it in a way, in a positive way to say, it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. You can live the life. You can be 70, 80, 90 years old and still go bow hunting if you wanted to, you know, you could be going with your great grandkids to the beach and know who they are Mm -hmm. and get to like see their face and have all these memories fill up. And like, I was hugging your dad on this beach. I was hugging your dad's dad on the beach. Now I'm hugging you on the beach, Mm -hmm. you know? This is, it's a, it's, this is to me says the brain and insulin is so important that if you're not thinking about it, you, you're not really thinking about what could happen and trying to live, make sure you don't allow that to happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so like, if you are one of those people or, you know, one of those people that says what I said at the beginning, which is like, oh, I'm, I don't want to live till I'm 80 because I don't want to lose my mind and have dementia and Alzheimer's. If you are one of those people that says that, or know somebody, ask the question: Are what are you doing to prevent that? Because there, based off of what we're reading here, and based off of what we know now, there is a lot you can do. And it doesn't start when you start developing those things. It starts right now. Mm -hmm. What are you doing right now to help protect your brain, keep your brain functioning optimally? well into your 80s 90s however long you end up living what are you doing today to make sure you're living the best life now and in the future amen brother (laughs) like that that is it's so hard to get
1: uh, our culture doesn't work that way and and as a diabetic it's almost our our responsibility to find a way to shift it to be that way yeah um But I understand, you know, part of the, you know, I understand diabetes burnout, we deal with a lot, um, every single day, and which I'm sure we'll go into burst my beta cells with you. And you'll share a little (laughs) bit of a story here soon. Um, We deal with a whole hell of a lot. So yeah, if somebody is already dealing with depression, and already some mental health issues, which is could be a physiological brain thing, right? You know, but nonetheless, sometimes adding one more thing could just be kicking the dog when it's down. So I get it. However, what eventually, you know, with the right team, that dog to keep the analogy can maybe stand back up and then we can kind of relook at these types of things. All right. So let's throw some numbers at this to make this a little bit more real. Within the entire world, the amount of diabetics out there is around 250 million. So almost think about that as a denominator, right? So there's 250 diabetics out there right now, well, not right now, back in 2010, and 90% of those are type 2 diabetic. In 2014, four years later, there was 30 million Alzheimer's patients, and then estimated to be 120 million by 2040. So this rate is growing for Alzheimer's is growing rapidly. And if we just look at those numbers, 120 million and 250 million diabetics, You know, there's those numbers are pretty high. So, how are the? You know, just looking at those numbers, there's might be some connection there, which we obviously just talked about physiologically, how and why there is. So, but if insulin, you know, is made in the brain, has to cross the blood-brain barrier, might not. You know, as diabetics, we're talking about insulin with what we eat. We see it in our blood. So, what's the connection here? Well connection is that insulin resistance in the periphery uh, could facilitate insulin resistance in the brain, right? That, that is the thought. And we've kind of talked about that, but just to say that in a statement, insulin resistance in the periphery could increase and influence insulin resistance in the brain. Um, And that could alter that brain function, all the functions we talked about, and therefore increasing, you know, amyloid beta plaques and fibrils and part of the dementia pathophysiology that is still, um, not fully understood. So if you're fighting, so this is what to do. Then if you're fighting, if you're diabetic with blood sugar issues or pre-diabetic, like so many people are, uh, you know, fighting your insulin resistance in your body and the, you know, with all your glute four and, and, and your skeletal muscle and your, your liver fighting insulin resistance, there probably is going to fight the insulin resistance within your brain. Yeah, because whatever you're
0: doing is making your body healthier. So whether it's exercise, diet, or even things that help working out on inflammation, because inflammation will bring down um, insulin resistance, both in the periphery and the brain. So whatever you're doing to make your body healthier, it's probably going to make your brain healthier too.
1: Right, exactly. Um, And, uh, you know, this is, you already mentioned the long-term game, right? You know, pre-diabetes sometimes it can take 10 to 15 years to manifest into fully diagnosed type two diabetes. Like that's a long window for you to not be over the edge where your physiology is different and you have to work, you know, cause we talked about that with the CGMs like uncontrolled metabolic disease versus just barely pre-diabetic or two different states. So you, there's a, there's literally a decade plus that you could have a window of really impacting how is this affecting your body and your brain? Like you said, what are helping your body is going to help your brain.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that, that statistic can be misleading or at least people's mindset on diabetes, pre-diabetes and that whole thing can be misleading because, you know, how, how can somebody be pre-diabetic for 10 to 15 years? Well, it's diabetes or blood sugar is a spectrum. It's not like, you all of a sudden, bam, I have type 2 diabetes. It's more so you've probably been working that way for a while. And if you've been there for 10 years or 10 or 15 years, what's what's likely happening? You may be eating healthy one meal a day and then the rest of the meal is not so healthy. And then therefore, yeah, your blood sugar isn't too bad, but it's still out of whack because of those other two meals. Whatever the case may be is what's keeping you in that state for 10 to 15 years. And then all of a sudden you have an injury or, um, you retire and you become much more sedentary. And now you don't have that exercise to combat some of those bad foods that you've been eating. All right. Now you have, you've been pushed far enough along that spectrum to be diagnosis type two diabetic. Right. And this is, um, there's so much misinformation out there
1: actually about this too. I was. Um, I was just talking with a patient about prediabetes uh, chiropractic patient today. Cause she was talking about some neuropathy she was getting in her big toe. Um, and so right now, the best definition of prediabetes type two diabetes is the A1C number, right? And, you know, essentially 5.7 to 6.5 A1C is prediabetes range. Well, she was telling me about neuropathy in her toe. Um, and I was ta- talking about maybe some things going on in her leg or maybe some supplements to help with, uh, that and i asked her i was like are you pre-diabetic because you know it's i've seen it for a while so we're focusing on you know her back and her spine and other issues she's like oh no and she's like, the last time i got my a1c checked it was 6.1 and i was like no that's that's pre-diabetic if your a1c is 6.1 there's pre-diabetes she's like well that's not what my other doctor said i was like as a diabetic i can guarantee you the american diabetes association does not have 6.1 labeled as the cutoff range for pre-diabetes yeah you know, that blew my mind. Um, but anyways, not to diss any, anyone, you know, missing, like I said, misinformation is, is everywhere.
0: Yep.
1: Um, and so to more to your point, people are in this, and sometimes they think they're fine, or they might hear it takes a long, long time to develop. And like, oh, if it takes a long time, I'll deal with it later. Yeah, that's, that's not the mindset that we're trying to get here, get across, right? Your brain is more important to say, I'll get to it later. Mm -hmm. or ironically your brain's not going to remember to get to it later yeah yeah exactly um so when within the u.s back in 2004 this is this is the interesting statistic and this is why diabetes is now being called or sorry alzheimer's can be called type 3 diabetes statistics like this is that the prevalence of pre-diabetes and and diabetes so both of those labels combined so that prevalence of pre-diabetes and diabetes in alzheimer's patients in the united states back in 2004 was 81 That
0: that is a lot
1: <laughs> that is so high like that is that is ungodly amount high in terms of, especially in a statistic in medicine mm-hmm. like that is that is so clear that there is a connection there that it's like we need to be doing something more
0: yep.
1: <laughs> you know um it's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, so essentially if you have type one diabetes and you have type two diabetes with this association, you know, with all the um, disadvantages or the lack of function that can happen with insulin resistance, the cognitive impairments, the brain atrophy, all these physiological impacts, we're at a disadvantage. We're at a diet disadvantage. um, If you're in this category, especially type ones for those who who haven't asked about it, but it doesn't mean you can't do something
0: about it. Exactly. Yep. And it starts, like I said, it starts today, start working on, um, getting blood sugar under control, getting your body healthy, reducing inflammation. If you're working on that constantly, likelihood down the road, you're going to be feeling and functioning pretty darn good.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is why I'm obsessed with basal rates with my insulin pump is, like once I started learning a little bit about this concept was okay. Insulin is clearly important for not just my, my sugars, but for everything. So I want to make sure I have it. Yeah. And from a pure only type one perspective, if you, there might be at a disadvantage just to take off your pump for a workout because there's a higher chance you're going to fluctuate. Yeah. So I try to like, when I run, I try to keep my pump on and not even if it's a shorter run, try to have it on and change the basal rate because my thought is then, well, I really have no idea, especially with exercise, what this is, how this is influenced my brain and all the other parts of my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if insulin is doing all these functions within my brain, you know, the functionality within this of my adrenals during this run might be more different than just the glute four activation. Mm-hmm. And so this, to me, this type of information really opened up my eyes of, I need You need to think about insulin, not just as glucose into the cell, but insulin is a hormone, just like thyroid hormone, or testosterone, or estrogen, DHEA, whatever have you. And to not have it or have too much of it where your body can't use it is an issue that you continue want to want to work on. So, you know, that's why I practically try to even make sure I have insulin and always have a flow of it, even if it's that super low amount. So I don't know that I think there's some practicality in there. Um, even if it's maybe speculation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: Oh, man. So, this, I think this, uh, you know, we took a 14 page uh, review article with 260 references. And I think we did a pretty good job summarizing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was a beast.
1: <laughs> and so, um, to everyone still listening out there, uh, you know, I hope you get a similar takeaway that there is things you can do right now. And, for your body for your insulin resistance for your a1c for your overall health what you're going to be doing is going to be affecting your brain and you know there's some practicality in thinking about insulin is more than just that what what we typically think about it and think about it as hey if i don't want alzheimers it's just one more thing to to make sure one more motivation so i can remember that i that i've lived a great life we're trying to live the life you deserve now we want you to remember that you've lived a great life, that you deserve yep. to remember that. Oh, so, great. Now, that, let's transition from the brain back to the pancreas. And what's bursted your beta cells recently?
0: Yeah, so I posted on social media about this, but my uh, pump died on me. And honestly, well, well. my pump dying on me wasn't as bad as what it was alerting me to, or like the alerting. Like I told my dad, he was sitting next to me when, when it died. And it was just constantly trying to alert me saying that there was a critical error. I'm like, yes, I know. I know there is a critical error. You've been telling me for 30 minutes now. And I took the battery out and it was still alerting me and it would not shut up. I'm like, I literally couldn't clear it either. Like there wasn't like a scroll down. Okay. Clear nothing it was just like constantly going and it it was so annoying and then when i uh called the medtronic rep he's like okay put the battery back in this is after i already died and um it started going crazy when i put the battery back in he's like and then take it back out and then you hold the back button and it should turn off so all the while this is like screaming at the top of its lungs while i'm on the phone with them and i'm holding it for like two minutes he's like well i don't think it's gonna turn off i'm like nope it is not (laughs) so i ended up putting it out in the garage and in the car so I, i wouldn't have to hear it all night long and um yeah i was i was over it i mean i was already kind of aggravated at the fact that i no longer had a pump and i was gonna have to do injections every two hours or whatever mm-hmm. but uh but then to have the freaking thing going off forever i mean that the older medtronic punk that i had was so much better in regards to the fact that it gave you the information that you needed but it didn't like bug you forever about it and right. it wasn't annoying as hell so um this newer one it's good but at the same time, let me control how much it alert me, alerts me because it's yeah. just way too much.
1: Yeah, it's uh, when that thing starts screaming at you, it's it's a deaf it's whatever your screams, it falls on deaf ears. On that yeah. point, man, it's it's unfortunate. So what was the ultimate solution? Um, you know, essentially. So what was thought? Why did it break? And then how did you get through that that event?
0: Yeah. So I think it broke because it must've gotten some water damage. Um, I, had, um, I was in the pool, um, that afternoon and, and then I was just kind of air drying. So I, it must've got water in there somehow. So, um, so that's probably how it happened. It didn't like the failure didn't happen until hours after I had gotten out of the pool, but that was literally the only thing I could think of. I didn't drop it at all or anything like that. Hmm. Um, but ultimately I called Medtronic. They sent the pump. Unfortunately it happened, um, right before we were driving to Colorado for a wedding. So we're going to be driving 12 hours. And so we had it sent to the hotel in Colorado and it got there by the time, um, we got there, which was nice, but then I forgot to pack a reservoir for it. So I couldn't use it anyways. So, uh, yeah, so I, uh, so I had to go on long acting insulin (laughs) for a little while
1: wow man that's uh but you still have the ability to use long act you know that was like all right don't have my pump might not get to it for a while long acting insulin yeah and that's super frustrating i'm sure you were just angry as all heck the whole weekend
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it wasn't it was nice that i had a lot of distraction um because that way i wasn't thinking about it all the time mm-hmm. but and it was also nice that it was on a driving day, even though it was kind of a pain in the butt trying to coordinate how to get my long acting insulin and my pump and everything, mm-hmm. but I wasn't doing anything. I was just sitting and driving or sitting in, um, in the car. So I wasn't adding a bunch of activity into it. I wasn't trying to work all day with in between patients, trying to check and inject and all that stuff. So it was the worst timing, but also not ter- not the worst timing.
1: Mm. Wow. Wow. We were uh we were, I think it's still funny. I want to bring up on the recording, uh we were talking about before we started the this episode. If Grady was going to, even though he's so calm and collected on on camera and over the podcast, um, he's an angry diabetic. and that's why we love this this segment so much and when he and i started bonding over diabetes it was always about bursting our beta cells about you know this and that and um i think if grady had an individual persona it would be grady the angry diabetic and um maybe we can get some momentum out there about uh yeah people might say yeah let's do that for grady so
0: yep yeah the i guess i've said before i'm a pretty calm person it's hard to hard to get me mad and and angry but my diabetes will set me off right away. Right. <laughs> oh, man. So for me, with my
1: diabetes recently, it was not so much. I mean, I'm sure I could find something to burst about, but I've actually been really happy on, especially this past weekend, uh, two things. One, you know, I, I just uh, changed some of my basal rates up for Monday through Friday for work in the weekend. You know, I started really looking, um, especially since it's been kind of hard to make time for that kind of stuff and haven't seen my endo in a while, but I was adding my basal rates and this week, it looks like it's working out for the most part. Um, Nice. So that was, yeah. yeah, So that's good. But the real diabetic when I was, you know, I just started training and and running a lot more um, for my next race and running with diabetes is is always, uh, you know, we just had on on you know not too long ago Mm -hmm. and and he was great and part of that conversation like made me push me over the edge to like sign up for my next race and a couple other factors but um but it was you know the the runs that I've been doing have actually been pretty steady um and I've figured out a way and even in a situation this weekend where I didn't have any juice I didn't have the foods I normally have because of whatever was happening but I was able to use like honey before a run, use my temp basal rates. Like there was one day that I was super steady all throughout the night, which is like really, which is good to go on a run because it's easier to control. But if you're steady, you're going to easier to drop low. Right. Yeah. Um, but I was able to navigate that like perfectly. And that run the next day, I actually calculated my dinner incorrectly, had a terrible low in the middle of the night and I lost all control and I ate everything inside And I woke up at like 380. And, oh, wow. and so I had a super high blood sugar in the morning. Um, but I was then able to correct that and stop it from going too low and let it stabilize and really fast and then go on a run afterwards. And then that run was stable too. So it was even though it was this big bounding, you know, if you have this big bound and try to run right away, man, that can be you know, Don was saying, you know, that's why I asked him one of the questions on, you know, two episodes ago was if you have high blood sugar, what do you do? And he, and he just, he was like, he just kept running, but he was literally on a mission. <laughs> yeah. You know? So if it's Saturday and, and my blood sugar is crashing or my blood sugar is super high, I'll run a little bit later to make sure the run goes better, yeah. um, you know? And so that's just me personally.
0: And so, um, well, and also just- like your, the context is a lot different, Cause like with me, I'm the same way as Don. Like if it's high, I'm going to run so I can bring it down faster, but at the yeah. same time, I'm not running as far as you are. So it's like, right. I don't need that much stability going into it because the run's only 25, 30 minutes long. So it's yeah. not, not the end of the world, but if you're running for an hour, yeah, an or hour more, plus, then yeah, you, you want some stability. So, you know, like where you, where you're going and how you need to manage that.
1: Exactly. So, um, so yeah, the stability. So I felt good to, you know, I I've been running for three and a half years to, with my diabetes now, and uh it felt good to, it was a it was a good win. So I thought I would share a, instead of a burst, I'd share a win. <laughs> Be a little bit positive. Right, right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for tuning in uh to this episode of the Diabetes Podcast. Hope we didn't bore you too much and didn't use too much uh jargon um in terms of the science side, but uh We hope you've got something out of it, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you found value in today's conversation, we would appreciate it if you gave a five-star review. It really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it. If you want to interact with us on social media, you can follow us on The Die Buddies Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or moral outrages, you can email us at thediebuddiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks.